I would invite you to take your Bible as we turn to the Word of God, to Philippians chapter 3. As we return to this letter, and we'll be, over the next three weeks, or actually beyond that, working through a series of messages that will be called, How to Stand Firm. How to Stand Firm. We've been away from Philippians for almost two months before. So before I uh, read the text, I think it would be helpful for us to do a quick summary of what we've learned so far as we had began this letter back in June. The theme of Philippians is rejoice. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This letter is often called the epistle of joy because of how often Paul commands the believers to rejoice, or he talks about having joy in the midst of his circumstances. But that doesn't mean that this letter is all about celebrating the good things in life. Quite the opposite. The church in Philippi was going through a difficult time of pressure from without and conflict from within. Uh, the, the, The city of Philippi was a Roman colony with a strong identity and culture of paganism. But it also had many Jews living in it, and so the external opposition was both from pagans and from Jews. Scripture says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So because the gospel is foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block for Jews, the believers in Philippi experienced the same kind of persecution and opposition that all churches at that time experienced. Paul himself, as you recall, was in prison when he first went to Philippi to preach the gospel and establish that first church. He was attacked in that moment by pagans. And then now, as Paul is writing this letter, he's sitting imprisoned in Rome because he was attacked by a group of Jews in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know what specifically was going on in terms of that external pressure between or from the Jews and Gentiles, but whatever it was, the Philippian church was feeling it. There were also conflicts from within the church that threatened their unity. In this letter, Paul doesn't address the specifics of that conflict, but it was significant enough for the the church to send Epaphroditus to Paul in Rome, which was a several-month round trip, uh, to get Paul's help in resolving the issues. As we've said, there was a, a close bond between Paul and this church in Philippi. He planted the church along with Timothy and Silas about 10 years prior to this letter, and over that 10 years, there were multiple visits by Paul and his delegates Uh, And the church has supported Paul financially more than any other church. So there was deep love and affection between Paul and this church. So as he writes, Paul doesn't just address their issues in a theological way. He writes to them as a beloved friend. He begins the letter in chapter 1 with an expression of gratitude to the Lord for them, conveying his personal love and affection and prayers on their behalf. Uh, He then gives them an update on his situation in Rome and encourages them with the reality that even though he's in prison, the gospel is not, and it is going to places where it could not otherwise go, even to the very center of the Roman government. 
He then encourages them with a reminder that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And every situation is an opportunity to to live for Christ, putting his glory on display, or to die for Christ, proving that he is worth more than our very lives. In cultivating this attitude then, in every situation we can have joy. And remember, we've defined joy as that emotion of delight and strength produced by the Holy Spirit when we view the circumstances of life through the lens of God's Word. Delight and strength. In chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the internal strife in the church. But rather than addressing the specific issue itself, what he does is he admonishes the church to cultivate Christ-like character Uh, and humility, and attitudes which will help them work through the issues they're having, both in the present and whatever will come up in the future. He calls them to remember that their lives should be fundamentally different than that of unbelievers, and as such, they have the opportunity to put on display the transforming power of the gospel. And then Paul closes chapter 2 with a discussion of his plans to send Timothy to them soon and explaining why he was sending Epaphroditus at this time. And that brings us then to Philippians chapter 3. So if you're there, follow along as I read verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. With the word finally there in verse 1, Paul begins a new section. And this section runs all the way down to chapter 4, verse 1. This is one of those areas where the chapter divisions don't help us. Chapter 3 begins with the admonition to rejoice in the Lord and then an affirmation that what he's about to say has the aim of securing them in the truth. And then at the end of that section, chapter 4, verse 1, look at it there. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The word therefore there 
is a statement of conclusion. It's a, it's a signal that he's wrapping up what he has said before. In fact, the words of chapter 4, verse 1, really give us the aim of chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. He says, in this way, in the way that I've just explained to you, stand firm in the Lord. So again, this will be our theme for the next couple months as we walk through chapter 3. How to stand firm in the Lord. We all need this word, don't we? It's not that we live in uniquely troubled times. It's that in a sin-cursed world, every time is troubled. Job says, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Whether it's the endless troubles in the world that we're daily confronted with, where the effects of sin are upon society and around the globe, or it's the unexpected trials that come upon us and threaten to overwhelm us. Like an earthquake, trouble can unsettle our lives and bring out the weaknesses in our foundation. Like a tornado, suffering can unexpectedly rip away from us that which we thought was secure. Like a tsunami, suffering and trials can slam against us with little warning and then drag us through debris. Sometimes suffering is like the the waves of, of the sea that crash upon us one after another, after another, after another. Other times trials are like just that constant rain and windstorm, which don't seem all that bad at first, but eventually that tree topples over or the Basement floods or the pipes freeze. Whatever the trouble we're in, we're in a constant state of needing our feet secured on unshakable ground. We need something, not that we can grip, but that can so grip us that we won't be helplessly tossed around. In Ephesians 4.14, Paul wrote, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He, he speaks there of those who are tossed around by false teaching. And indeed, that's along the lines of what Paul is saying here to the Philippians. When we don't have a grip on the truth, we will be easily led astray and find ourselves confused by false teachers over what to believe. But you know, most of the time, it's not the circumstances around us that are troubling. It's that the circumstances around us reveal what we really believe. Like Jesus and the disciples in the storm, the disciples would tell you that it was the storm that frightened them. But the truth is, The storm only revealed how much they didn't trust the one that was traveling with them. What Paul aims to do here in Philippians 3, and especially in verses 1 to 11, is anchor our souls in Christ so that no matter what pressures we face in life, our security is found in the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we can rejoice When we find our life in Christ, the Spirit produces in us delight and strength. Well, look look again at verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This word finally here does not mean 
in conclusion. Otherwise, he would be like a pastor who says, in closing, and then he keeps talking for 20 minutes. Rather, what this means is, as to what remains, he's, he's not bringing the letter to a close. He's shifting, he's transitioning from his discussion of Timothy and Epaphroditus onto something else. And he says then, rejoice in the Lord. This command encapsulates what other scripture would say, such as Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Or Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his, his might. To rejoice in the Lord really is to do what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, where he wrote, set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Finding your life in Christ has been and will continue to be the theme of this letter. And so Paul transitions from one subject where he has temporarily gotten away from the main theme. And he calls out that there's more to say on this subject of rejoicing in the Lord. And this certainly won't be the last time he says in chapter 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so this command is really a chorus between the verses in this letter. And then Paul says in verse 1, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. There's some debate of what Paul means here when he says to write the same things again. Is he referring to things he's said earlier in the letter? Or is there perhaps another letter that he's written in the past or perhaps in-person teaching that he's done and that he's reiterating here? It's not entirely clear what he means, but we can say for certain that there is repetition in what's to follow from what he has already said in chapters 1 and 2. For example, in chapter 1, verse 21, as we've said, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he repeats that theme in this section of verses 1 to 11, just from a different angle. He also said in chapter 1, verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so here in this chapter, he is giving instructions on how to stand firm. There are other themes and truths that Paul repeats here in chapter 3 and even chapter 4, which he has already talked about, but you get the idea. But beyond that, we could say that it would make sense for Paul to have written other letters where he may have said similar things. This is speculation, of course, but we know that the Philippian church has sent Paul financial support in the past, and so it would make sense. In fact, it would be appropriate for him to respond to that financial support with them or to them by giving them a letter. And so it may be that he had written uninspired letters uh, where he encouraged them with similar truths. It's been a few years since he's corresponded with them as far as we know, and so it may be that repetition at this point would be helpful for them. So whether he's referring only to what he said before or he has in mind other letters he's sent, he affirms that it is no trouble for him to send this letter and affirm those truths. This uh, statement that it's not troublesome for him is actually a common saying in ancient letters. Uh, you can imagine the expense and the time it would take in the ancient times uh, to write letters meant that you would only do it if you really had to. It was a purposeful uh, endeavor. And so in ancient letters, you find statements like, 
it is not burdensome for me to write to you. Or don't hesitate to write concerning your health. Or don't be afraid to write letters because I'm extremely glad to get them. So people would encourage each other to write letters because it wasn't that easy. Or they would affirm that it wasn't a bother to do it. In Paul's case, he affirms that in addition to not being a burden, he gladly writes for them because it is, it is a safeguard for them. This means that what he has to say will bring security to them. It will ground them in the truth. It will bring stability to their lives. And so in saying this, Paul heightens their interest in what he's about to say because of its significance for their lives. And so we would do well to pay attention as well. Now, with those introductory statements, Paul moves into discussing how to stand firm in the Lord. In verses 2 to 11, he walks through three stabilizing measures that we must take to stand firm in the Lord. Three stabilizing measures. The first is to discern friend from foe. Discern friend from foe. The second is to lose everything for Christ. Lose everything for Christ. And the third is to live in the power of Christ. Live in the power of Christ. Each of those points will receive their own message over the next three weeks. So today we're just going to cover discern friend from foe. The first stabilizing measure we must take to stand firm in the Lord is to discern friend from foe. Look at verse 2. Paul writes, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Three times he repeats this command. Beware. Look out for, ESV says. Watch out for, other translations say. This speaks of the reality that there are constant threats out there seeking to knock us off our feet and move us away from Christ. And so we must beware. As watchmen on the walls of our lives, we must keep our eyes on the horizon. With the invisible spiritual battle that's constantly raging, we must be looking out for the deceptive schemes of the evil one, our adversary, the devil. This threefold command of beware or watch out is needed, not only because there's constant threats all around us, but because threats don't always look like threats. Scripture says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There are times, indeed, where Satan gives a full frontal attack, such as persecution, to try to weaken the church. But there are other times when his strategy is to weaken the church from, from the inside. And he does that by planting tares among the wheat, false believers among true worshipers. He places false teachers over churches. Subtlety and deception are among his favorite tools and weaponry and strategy. And so if we are to stand firm, we have to beware of threats, especially those that don't sound or look threatening. Even those that come from within. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They did, and they do in every church. So beware. A major threat the early church 
uh, experience were the Jews who tried to syncretize the gospel with Judaism. Uh, There were many who affirmed and celebrated Christ and his work on the cross. But they also said, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to get circumcised and follow other aspects of the Mosaic law. That was a subtle threat because there was enough truth to sound plausible, but enough error to make it damnable. And Paul reserved his strongest language, even stronger than what we find here, for the Galatian church that was being deceived by this false teaching. And it seemed as though this was one of the threats in Philippi as well. How Paul describes The opponents here may sound harsh to us, but actually what Paul is doing is giving a stark contrast to how those opposed to the church would present themselves. One of the ways the the, uh, threats of the church present themselves is as a friend to the church, as a fellow worshiper of God, as, as those who are committed to doing God's will. And so for those who are less discerning and who want to believe the best about others and not judge motives of the heart, it can be difficult to discern what is a threat and and what isn't. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls a spade a spade and reminds us that no matter how smooth someone might sound or how well-dressed they may be or how friendly they appear to be, we have to be able to see through the facade. The, the people Paul talks about here are the same opponents in verses, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, or the crooked and perverse generation, as he called them in chapter 2, verse 15. And these three statements here are a reversal of what the Jews believed about themselves. As you look at verse 2, you can see that he refers to Jews who are bringing pressure on the church as dogs. Dogs in the ancient world were not pets. They were scavenger animals. Uh, They roamed the streets. They were filthy and despised. In fact, if you do a word search in your uh, Bible app for the word dogs, you will find an entirely negative view. Uh, It was dogs that ate the wicked Queen Jezebel, and there were no bones left to bury. In the account of the rich man in Lazarus, uh, to demonstrate his destitution, it said that the dogs were licking the sores on his body. And don't think they were being kind to him. They were just getting an appetizer. Dogs are despised. They're despicable. They're disgusting. They're filthy. They were not domesticated. They were not man's best friend. And they certainly weren't members of the family. But in time, the Jews began to refer to the Gentiles as dogs. In their mind, Gentiles, like dogs, were unclean. They were untamed and wild. Gentiles were pagans who lived according to the lust of the flesh and and engaged in all kinds of immoral and barbaric behavior. Gentiles were so despised by the Jews that you were not allowed to eat with one, to share a meal with one. It would be tantamount in their mind to going into the street and sharing your lunch with a rabid animal. But what Paul does here in calling Jews and Jewish leaders and false teachers' dogs, as he turns the table and points out the irony that no, those who are the enemies of the cross, as he calls them in verse 18, they are the ones who are dogs. 
They are the ones who have rejected God's word and God's Messiah. And they live according to the lust of their flesh. And they engage in mindless and meaningless rituals and sacrifices. The Jews were a rabid people who lost their minds and crucified the Messiah and persecuted the church. Paul himself had been many times on the receiving end of of wild crowds out of control who tried to kill him and whose eyes were full of irrational hate and violence. And so Paul calls Jewish oppressors dogs, not in a mindless exasperation or frustration, but to point out the irony of their own opinion. If you look again at verse 3, the next description he uses of them is that they are evil workers. Evil workers. This is in direct contrast to what the Jews believed about themselves, namely that they were workers of righteousness. They are the ones who obey the law of Moses and uphold justice and righteousness. In fact, they were so committed to upholding righteousness that they they created a layer of laws around God's laws because they didn't even want to get close to disobeying God's law. The problem is they exchanged God's standard of righteousness and created their own competing righteousness, which is an evil act. Like their father, the devil, they set God's word aside and propped up their own law. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. Think about that. You invalidate the word of God. It doesn't matter how religious someone claims to be. If they make God's word null and void, they are a worker of evil. The third designation there in verse 3 that Paul gives to these Jewish opponents is that they are the false circumcision. The ESV says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Or the NIV, those mutilators of the flesh. New King James says, beware of the mutilation. Uh, The word is katatome in the Greek. Katatome, which is very similar to peritome, which is the word for circumcision. Katatome means to to cut down, whereas peritome means to cut around, which is why it's the word for circumcision. Paul's point in using katatome is to emphasize that by making circumcision a sign of religious zeal, they have become like the prophets of Baal. In 1 Kings 18, we read about this contest that was held between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of Yahweh, Elijah. And the winner of this context, the one who would prove themselves to be, to be the one true and living God, would be the one who would send fire down from heaven to consume the offering that they had set up. Well, being a gentleman, the prophet Elijah said, you guys go first. After they had called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, it says, there was no voice and there no one answered. Rather than encouraging them to quit, Elijah encouraged them to continue. He said, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he's occupied, which means he's in the bathroom, or gone aside, or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. And so they stepped up their efforts. And it says, so they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. 
their false religion had taught them that if they cut their bodies, their God would receive their worship. And Paul is here connecting the dots to say that the Jews think that it's circumcision that creates a connection to God. But they missed the reality that Scripture has always said that your relationship with God must be based on faith. And so while they claimed themselves to be the circumcision as a matter of spiritual superiority, the truth is they were mutilators of the flesh. Their circumcision was false. With those three descriptions, Paul makes it clear that those who promoted Judaism as a way to have a right relationship with God were a threat to the church. Because though they sound pious and they look great, they were in fact enemies of God. In contrast to them, then, Paul reminds us what true piety is, true religion. What is it that really defines godliness? Well, look at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These three descriptions may be or must be true of every believer in Christ. And understanding them will help us discern when someone or some teaching is a threat or if they are a friend. This is not an exhaustive uh, filter, of course, but these are essential filters to discern truth from error. The first description here, as you see, is that we are the true circumcision. If you notice, the word true is in italics, which means it's not in the original. The NAS translators were just making a, a distinction between false and true to help us understand the contrast from katatome. But the word here is simply peritome, circumcision. It must be that Paul is speaking figuratively about circumcision because he's including all believers in this statement, not just those who are physically circumcised. Circumcision was a mark of Abraham's physical descendants, but it has no relationship or no relevance to one's standing with God. But the word circumcision is used in a spiritual sense, and that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, even all the way in the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, it says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord promises that he would in fact do this for his people. Moses writes, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants and the heart, uh, excuse me, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And then many, many centuries later, the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and he says to his people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. The idea here is to cut off that natural sinful layer of the heart. It's, it's a graphic way to speak about the need to mortify the flesh and its sinful desires. Of course, man can't do this on his own, which is why the new covenant promises to remove our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. Paul himself picks up on this figurative use in Colossians uh, chapter 2. If you turn over a few pages to the right in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, 
he says, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is really a reference to regeneration, that we have died with Christ, which, we, which is why he goes on to say that we have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is what Paul means here in Philippians 3.3, 3, that we believers, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your physical condition, you have been circumcised in Christ. He has cut off that sinful nature and he has given us a new heart. We have been crucified with Christ and now we live in him. Unlike those who are circumcised in the flesh but still dead in their sin, we have been circumcised by the Spirit. We may or may not be the physical descendants of Abraham, but we are the spiritual children of Abraham. As Paul writes in Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he would be the father of all who believe without circumcision, that righteousness might be credited to them. So, beloved, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are circumcised spiritually and those who are not. There are those who are alive in Christ and those who are dead in their sin. There are those who are new creatures in Christ and those who are in bondage to sin. There are those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. And so we must beware of those who are uncircumcised of heart and who are dead in their sin. Too often believers are swayed by religious leaders of other religions or cults or unorthodox Christian denominations. Those who claim to have a connection with God, but who want to add to what the Word of God says or take away. They offer something other than or in addition to the simple gospel. They must be avoided. Watch out. Have nothing to do with them. Stand firm in Christ. The next description of believers here, notice, is that we are those who worship in the Spirit of God. We worship in the Spirit of God. Perhaps your mind goes to where my mind initially, initially went that, oh, he's talking about those who, are, who worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, worship is not necessarily a bad translation here, but the problem is we have a too narrow view of what worship is. Uh, this is not the typical word for worship. It's the same word, actually, as is used in Romans 12.1, which says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That last phrase, spiritual worship of service, is the word that's here in our text simply as worship. And the first part of that verse, Romans 12, defines what that means. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. In other words, to say that we worship in the Spirit is to say that by the power of the Spirit, we give our lives in sacrificial service to God. We serve God. We minister to God by His Spirit. This is in contrast to the Jewish leaders who again considered themselves as workers of righteousness and servants of God. 
Uh, they had become like the servants, or excuse me, the sons of Eli who, had, uh, who served in the tabernacle, but they did it for their own selfish gain. But we are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9, a royal, a holy nation. We do not serve in a temple where God dwells. We are the temple in whom God dwells. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The service that we render to God, the the worship that we offer is not of the law nor of the flesh. It's empowered and driven by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. We serve for His glory, not our own, and in His power and not our own. Watch out for those who encourage you to engage in ministry in pragmatic ways. I constantly see ads aimed at pastors trying to encourage them. Here are the three simple steps you can take to grow your church. Books, articles, and and videos out there are, are trying to help you grow your church or reach your community or influence your city. You can increase the size of a body very quickly, but you're going to clog the arteries and create a whole lot of physical problems. Better to follow what God says in his word, empowered by the spirit, and let the chief shepherd determine whether to grow or shrink his church. Well, the final description of believers here that Paul gives in verse three is that we are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These are two sides of the same coin. To glory means to boast, to take pride in, And so instead of boasting in ourselves, our glory, our boast, our confidence is in Christ. This positive and negative description stands in contrast to those who boast in themselves. As we'll see next week, Paul had been one of those up-and-coming pharisaical leaders. And his boast was in himself, his ancestry, his heritage, his culture, his position, his religious zeal. And this is typical of those who would seek to shake the confidence and security of believers. They say, look at me. You can be like me. But we stand on an unshakable foundation that we can boast in without fear that someone will have a better boast. In fact, if you boast in yourself, your boast has an expiration date. If you boast in your works... Your boast can't stand all the cracks in your life. If you glory in your accomplishments, it only takes one failure to wipe all of it away. If you put confidence in your own ability to appease and please God, you've just revealed that you worship a false God because the true God cannot be appeased by man. There's only one sure basis on which we can boast, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren. 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's us, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, that's us, to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, still us, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why did God choose the foolish, the weak, the base, the despised, the nothings? So that no man may boast before God. Listen, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boast. How does that end? Boast in the, in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that we've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a, as a result of works, so that what? No man may boast. Of course, Paul means there so that no one would boast in themselves. Boasting is not a word we typically use in a positive way, except when we're boasting in someone else, like when a parent boasts in their child's accomplishments or a boss boasts in the achievement of their employee. Some translations here use the word rejoice. And that's helpful insofar as it reflects our heart's celebration of what God has done for us in Christ. And here, glorying in Christ carries that similar idea. But there's more to this word than just an emotional response or a personal conviction or confidence. There's also an aspect of bragging. There's a verbal component where we speak of what Christ has done for us so that as we rejoice and glory in Christ, others can join us in our celebration. Unlike those who might speak of their own accomplishments or display their, their piety in some fashion, we are those who not only put our confidence in Christ, but we put it on display so that all may know that Christ is everything to us. Now, Next week, we'll keep going down that train of thought with Paul as we look through verses 4 to 9. But as we close for today, the point Paul is driving at here in verses 2 and 3 is that we need to be able to discern friend from foe. And because threats are often subtle, we have to be able to see through the deceptive veil of smooth words and crisp presentations and attractive promises. When a doctor wants to see what's going on inside a body, they'll often order a CT scan. And doing that exam will often reveal exactly what they're looking for as they see the major components of what's inside. And that's similar to simply listening to what someone says or observing the, the externals of a false teacher and being able to discern, yep, that's false, or yes, that's true. But there are other times where that basic exam is not enough and the doctor has to inject contrast materials, which put under the right light will reveal things that they couldn't otherwise see. Remembering what is true about any believer, that we have been circumcised in Christ, 
that we worship and serve in the Spirit of God, and that we glory in Christ and not ourselves, is just the right filter that helps us see the contrast with those who may present themselves well, but who are a threat to the church. Now let's get real. In verse 3, Paul says, we. And so I've been using we. But these things are not true of everyone in this room. Some of you are here because your parents essentially forced you to come here. Perhaps you were willing. And you may be placing your confidence in the fact that you're part of a Christian family and therefore that's why you're going to get to heaven. But you know, no one gets to heaven in the back of a minivan. Or maybe others of you think you're a good person. And God in that final day will look at all your good things and ignore the bad things you've done. And he will accept you. Well, I would say to you that no one gets to heaven driving the minivan. In fact, if you stay in the driver's seat crossing the bridge to God, you will find the bridge too narrow and you will careen off the side and into the abyss before you get too close. My friend, there's only one way to be right with God. There's only one way to escape the judgment of God that is due to you because of your sin. And that is you have to cast aside your own trust in yourself or in anybody else and place your full trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose perfect life and substitutionary death and glorious resurrection is the only work that God accepts. And when you acknowledge yourself to be a helpless sinner and Christ to be a gracious Savior, that's when you can experience forgiveness and find reconciliation with God who made you. And you will then dwell with Him and with His people forever. So put no confidence in yourself. Place your whole trust in Christ and what He's done for sinners like you and me. And may we all who have put our trust in Christ keep our trust in Christ and not be like the Galatians who think that somehow we can add to his work in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word of instruction, this word of clarity of what is true and what is false. Help us to be wise and discerning. In this world, there are many false teachers. There are many who would seek to lead us astray. Many bestsellers, many highly rated books. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to know what is true and right. And in wisdom, to beware and to celebrate the truth of what you've done for us. Amen.